Welcome to Halley HealthCast, the monthly wellness podcast from Halley Health, your source for health and wellness resources, information, and tips. Every month we'll address a new topic important to your health, bringing in expert doctors, therapists, and specialists who will offer advice and answer your most pressing questions. August is National Immunization Awareness Month, so our topic today is vaccines, specifically why shots and immunizations are not just for children. Joining me today is Dr. Stephen Amaro. Dr. Amaro is an expert on infectious diseases at Springfield Clinic in Springfield, Illinois. So Dr. Romero, thanks so much for being on. Let's jump right in. We're exploring five vaccinations that are important for adults and when to get them. So vaccine number one, and perhaps the most common vaccine adults hear about is the flu shot. So tell us why it's such an important vaccination to get. Influenza vaccine prevents, of course, the illness called influenza. The most common and most difficult type is influenza A. The vaccine, when given to people, reduces their risk of dying two to five times relative to people who have not had the influenza vaccine. Patients who are age 18 to 49 years and 65 years and older who were hospitalized for the flu were 30% less likely to admit to the intensive care unit if they had the flu shot than if they did not. So even if you get the flu after you've had the flu vaccine, you're much less likely to have severe complications of it. And among children with high-risk medical conditions, vaccine reduced the risk of flu-associated death by 51%, and it reduced the risk of complications of flu over 65% in children who are vaccinated. So number two, another vaccine people might know about is the shot for tetanus and diphtheria. Can you tell us more about these? Tetanus and diphtheria, there is also a component with acellular pertussis. It's a vaccine for both adults and children. There are two variations, one with increased strength of the diphtheria and tetanus component, and then one with a lower strength of the diphtheria component for adults. Um, they prevent uh, childhood diseases and adult diseases associated with the bacteria named uh, in the vaccine, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Diphtheria is a disease that we don't see very often anymore, but is present still in the third world. It is a respiratory disease that causes breathing problems and can cause paralysis and heart failure and death by its ability to link up and interfere with certain types of cellular metabolism. It's highly contagious, spread by coughing and sneezing, and it was a significant cause of morbidity and mortality, and it will reappear if we don't vaccinate for it. Tetanus uh, is caused by a bacterium found in the soil, and once it enters the body, it releases a toxin. The toxin has extreme uh, toxicity at very low concentration. It can cause muscle spasms and eventually death if untreated as a consequence of respiratory insufficiency. Pertussis is a vaccine that prevents something called whooping cough, produces significant coughing spasms and significant illness, coughing significant enough to break your ribs in some people who, who get this illness. And uh, it all of these vaccines represent preventable illnesses. The major advances in medicine that have occurred that have resulted in improved life expectancy all relate to many of these vaccines that have been developed. If you look at the Social Security Act that was passed in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt, the average life expectancy was somewhere around 50 to 60 years. With the introduction of vaccines and antibiotics, we have seen life expectancy into the 70s and 80s. And so if you do not avail yourselves of these vaccines, you kind of put yourself into the demographic that was existing in the 1930s. That's an interesting way to look at it. And as you say, you know, these vaccines are so readily available and really so helpful in preventing these diseases. So number three, can you tell us about the human papillomavirus and the HPV vaccine? 
HPV vaccine or Gardasil protects against human papillomavirus infection, uh, which is acquired as a consequence of sexual contact. It is extremely important to introduce in uh, people who are in their teens uh, as they emerge into sexual activity and is administered uh, as late as sometimes as in the mid-20s. It was originally indicated for young women. It has also been extended to use in young men. Its primary role is to prevent certain general cancers, especially cervical cancer. And it is one of the initial vaccines that they intended to reduce the risk of cancer. The other being the hepatitis B vaccine that we have that reduces the risk of liver cancer. Yeah, definitely. So uh, number four, you know, as we age, are there certain shots that we should get? For example, can you tell me about the pneumonia vaccines? Uh, the pneumovax, there's actually two of them. There's, there's a 23-valent and a 13-valent pneumococcal vaccine. These vaccines are administered as a consequence either aging immune responses or as a consequence of coincident illnesses such as congestive heart failure, obstructive lung disease. Um, they reduce the risk of uh, mortality and morbidity associated with one type of pneumonia. People often confuse the, this by saying, I've had a pneumonia shot, and they come in with pneumonia, and they say, why did I get pneumonia? I had a pneumonia shot. Well, it reduces the severity of pneumococcal pneumonia if you get it, but it doesn't prevent pneumonia from other causes. It does prevent pneumonia, and it reduces the risk of sinus infections of the most common cause of that, which is the pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae. It's extremely important to give to people as they enter into their 60s, like everything else, as age progresses, uh, things in the body don't function as well. And so we give these vaccinations to people with, with uh, underlying heart disease, we give it to people with underlying lung disease, and we give this vaccination to people with advancing age in their immune system to reduce the risk of mortality and reduce the risk of death associated with this particular illness. Yeah, I can hear what you're saying, and you're so right, you know, that people often get vaccinations and then they get the thing, whether it's the flu or pneumonia, and they wonder how that's even possible. But, you know, as you're saying, uh, those vaccinations, especially in regards to pneumonia, is about preventing, you know, mortality and lessening the effects, uh, not necessarily preventing pneumonia, right? That's correct. You know, the other thing that happens, too, is that, especially in the fall, when Influenza vaccination is administered. It's usually sometime beginning in late September um, through even as late as February or March of the year if, if people are late in getting their flu shots or the flu is late in presenting. The problem with that is it's also given during a time when they're circulating viruses such as the parainfluenza viruses, the rhinoviruses, and some of the lesser lethal coronaviruses that cause common colds. And so when people get a flu shot and then all of a sudden they get a, a reaction such as a, a common cold coincidentally and I can tell you, if you vaccinate 100 million people, that's going to happen to a lot of people. They always blame the flu shot for it. It's important to know that the flu shot is not alive. It's a killed protein. The only real contraindications to giving the flu shot are a Guillain-Barre-like illness within six weeks of administration of the flu shot. And also the other contraindication would be an allergy to the influenza vaccine or one of its components. A lot of people claim allergies to eggs. There is an egg-free vaccine. A lot of people are concerned about mercury in the vaccine, and there's a, a mercury-free vaccine. We still have a lot of people who just refuse to get the vaccination. And as I said, if you refuse to take advantage of the advances in infectious disease and a prolonged life expectancy, then you really kind of put yourself into the uh, life expectancy tables of the 1930s. And that's kind of unfortunate. Really good to have you kind of clarify things there. You know, as I uh, head into my 50s, here, 
I think about shingles. I don't know why I'm thinking about shingles, but I'm thinking about it. So number five, what exactly is shingles? And can you tell me about the vaccine that prevents that painful infection? Shingles is an infection due to a virus called herpes zoster. It is the same virus that causes chickenpox. Problem with chickenpox is that it establishes, like all herpes viruses, do a ability to replicate itself later in life. It is able to insert into the human genetic material in certain cells, specifically nerve cells in uh, the ganglia, uh, the, a copy of the blueprint to produce itself. And it doesn't do that all the time, otherwise we'd really have a significant issue, but we'll do that. Uh, and it varies in, in individuals with a certain risk over a number of years. It does not indicate, for example, if you get it when you're in your 20s that you have a defect in your immune system, because we can see people who have had chickenpox get shingles even when they're eight or nine years old. It is, however, much more common when we see declination of immune function in this thing I call the age-related immune deficiency or waking of the immune system as you age. And when it occurs, it occurs in random places depending upon where that virus decided to set up its uh, blueprint. And it can occur on the body, it can occur on the face, it can occur in the first uh, trigeminal nerve and uh, involve face and, and the eye. And that's very serious if that happens. And it also can occur in a form, if you're very immune suppressed, such as if with advanced AIDS, or if you're taking a medication to suppress a rejection response to a transplant, it also can occur in a disseminated fashion and behave much like the original chickenpox and, and present with pneumonia. The varicella vaccination went through two iterations. We had a Zostavax, which was developed approximately 10 years ago. It was a live attenuated vaccine. What that means is it's an actual living virus that's been stripped of its ability to cause significant illness, but still can stimulate a reactive immune response. That, that vaccine was not useful for giving to people who are immune suppressed. We now have a, uh, a vaccine that is much like the current influenza vaccine. It is a, a killed uh, protein and it causes a, actually a killed nucleic acid component, causes a reaction to the virus that results in uh, a improved immune response and significantly reduces the risk of getting shingles. It, does, it reduces things like post-herpetic neuralgia, the tingling and the persistent pain that can last for years at the site of the infection. It reduces the risk of ocular damage and it reduces the risk of uh, other potential complications if you are severely immunosuppressed. I'm going to put you on the hot seat here before I let you go. With all that's been going on in the world this year, I have to ask this, of course, many people are wondering, have scientists developed a vaccine for COVID-19 uh, that is the disease caused by the novel coronavirus yet? There are several things in my lifetime that have occurred that have been extremely important. There was a lot of criticism about the timetable from the initial finding of HIV infection in the 19. 80s and the development of effective therapies, but I will tell you that never in the history of mankind has a disease presented, the cause been found, and the underlying treatments developed in just a short period of time that have saved so many lives is antiretroviral therapy for HIV. A lot of the virology that went into making that possible in the 1980s and early 1990s is now being used to uh, attack coronavirus. And so it took approximately 
three to four years to even characterize HIV. And subsequent to that, we, we developed something called a PCR test, to which is famous on some of these crime shows, these pathology shows at nighttime. But this PCR test was able to amplify and characterize the virus. We have gone on to develop the ability to recognize and treat hepatitis C as a consequence of this technology. And now we are applying that to coronavirus. The other thing that I've never seen happen is that we have a combined effort between usually competing pharmaceutical companies worldwide, uh, universities, and the government to develop this vaccine and share information about it. And I can tell you, I'm looking at vaccines in development, and I'm flipping through 10 pages with at least three to four candidate vaccines per page. And those are all in development. And the most promising ones are also being produced while they're in development so that as we get data from initial phase one and phase two trials, and it becomes uh, a time to to say we can give this, that we don't have to wait six months for the vaccine to be made in sufficient quantities to give to people. There is a history of a virus just like this in 2002, 2003 called SARS-1. Coronavirus is also given the name SARS-2 or COVID-19, this current infection. It is the same family of viruses. And SARS-1, there was a vaccine developed that was never administered because SARS-1 went away. It is becoming apparent that the number of people who have had COVID-19 infection and don't know it is very, very high. In May of 2020, May 4th, there was a, a press conference given by Governor Cuomo reporting public health data from New York State. And we look at New York State because they've had the most cases in the U.S. And at that time, they reported that two-thirds of their cases were coming from people who were sheltering in their homes. That is extremely important because a lot of people are asking people to stay out of work and to forego their economic viability for the purpose of presenting infections because sheltering at home is felt to be a safe place. Well, in March, we only had sheltering at home because we didn't have enough personal protective equipment for providers, let alone for people. So there has to be something more than sheltering at home. We have to figure out why that happens. Well, it turns out that between one-third and one-half of people who get coronavirus infections have no symptoms at all. And so the people who shelter at home don't do this on an island. They have to have people come in and help them for various things, meals, cleaning, taking out the garbage, whatever. And as a consequence, this virus has the ability to get into places like a Trojan horse, which means that sheltering at home is not enough for those people who are at high risk. They also need to make sure that the people who are coming in to help them wear a mask. And the surgical masks are meant in the way they're designed to prevent the humidified air from a surgeon or operating team to get into a wound. So they're not meant to protect the person wearing them. They're meant to protect the person in the environment of the person wearing them. So we wear a mask not to protect ourselves, but to protect those around us. And if you're out in the community and you're wearing a mask, you really should expect that people within three to six feet of you reciprocate and return the favor because their masks are what prevent you from getting infected. So that's kind of where we are with coronavirus. Thank you so much, Dr. Romero, for all this information, guidance, knowledge, and thanks for all that you do at Springfield Clinic. And that's it for today's podcast. Tune in next month when we'll explore five of the most common myths about the flu and flu season. And remember, Halley Health is your source for a wide variety of health and wellness resources, information, and tips. Visit us online at halley.com. Let us help keep you and your family healthy and well. Thanks for listening. We hope you tune in again next month.